Um, I'm going to ask you to open your Bibles to actually the book of Revelation this morning. We are going to study Hebrews 11 and finish Hebrews 11 today, but I want to start by taking to Revelation chapter 2, if you will. Revelation chapter 2. In the beginning of this wonderful letter, uh, the Apostle John, he's writing to the churches. He's writing to you and to me. He's writing to churches that he would no doubt would have had uh, been part of uh, ministering to in his time. Uh, Seven churches, to be precise. And in chapters 2 and 3, he speaks to these churches. And I want to show you that at the end of each of his messages to the churches, or near the end or somewhere uh, close to that, he speaks to a particular group. It's, he, it's to a group called the those who overcome, to those who overcome. And so in chapter 2, this is to the church in Ephesus, draw your attention to verse 7. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give to eat from the tree of life, which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Then he writes to the church in Smyrna, and if you look ahead to verse 11, he says this, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes shall not be hurt by the second death. Then he writes to the church in Pergamos, and in verse 17, He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes... I will give some of the hidden manna to eat. And then he writes to Thyatira. And in verse 26, he says, And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Then chapter 3, he writes to Sardis. And in verse 5, he says, He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot, blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And then to the church in Philadelphia, he writes in verse 12, he who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God and he shall go out no more. And finally to the Laodiceans in verse 21, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne. And I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Then just skip ahead to the end of the Revelation, to chapter 21. One more place he mentions this overcoming. Chapter 21, verse 7. Chapter 21, verse 7, he says, He who overcomes shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. Much is promised to he who overcomes, isn't it? A lot to he who overcomes. And the question then is, who is the one who overcomes? What, what is this promise about? Who is, it, uh, who is it to? And I want to just show you 1 John 5, 4 to 5. It gives us the answer here. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is he who overcomes the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Those who overcome are said to be ones who have faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we have been looking for months at the subject of faith, haven't we? And I looked back, it's been since October, and I know we've taken some breaks there, but that's a long time to take an in-depth look at a subject like faith. 
But it's been a wonderful journey. I hope you've enjoyed looking back at the wonderful Old Testament examples of men of faith. We looked at people like Abel and Enoch and Noah and Abraham and Sarah. We looked at Isaac and Jacob and and Joseph and uh, Moses. We've looked at all these characters that are uh, described to us in Hebrews 11. We've gone back to look at uh, their, their walks of faith during their life. And each of these people exhibited true biblical faith. But they didn't know Jesus. Yet it's true biblical faith. Because it was faith in the promises of God, taking him at his word, believing that he would fulfill his promise to them. And ultimately, all the promises, Bible says, are yes in Jesus Christ. And so all the promises are fulfilled in in him. And as we read earlier, it's our faith. It's our faith that overcomes the world. And the author now is zeroing in on this final aspect of of faith. He's giving us not an in-depth look at a couple of people, but he just sort of grazes by. He mentions a few names, and then he kind of just goes into a list of names, and then he goes into a very general reference of those that have this kind of faith. And it is such an encouraging end to this section. And it's a faith that overcomes. And that's the title of the sermon today, A Faith That Overcomes. Let's look at the passage today. If you want to go to to Hebrews, it's Hebrews chapter 11. And there are 11 verses that we haven't covered in Hebrews 11, verses 30 to 40. We're going to read that right now. Beginning of verse 30. By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawed in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And, And all these, excuse me, all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word to us today. We thank you for this amazing chapter in Hebrews, Lord. This section on faith has been so encouraging and instructive. And we thank you that, Lord, we get to study, um, Lord, this remaining section. And we just pray, Lord, as we look at this this aspect of faith, a faith that overcomes, Lord, that we would find much encouragement, even when we look at the difficult aspects that this presents. Lord, we pray for your spirit to be with us, that you would open up the truth of your word to us, that we might apply it, that, Lord, we would be able to exhibit this kind of faith 
not by your own strength, but by yours. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, this is a faith that overcomes, and we're going to look at a few things here. This faith that overcomes, overcomes a couple of different things and in a couple of different areas. Uh, Thank you, David. Um, One of the things we're going to look at, and it's, it's really clear when you look at the beginning examples that are given here, is that it's a faith that can conquer obstacles, a faith that can help people overcome struggles. And we have seen that to a degree in the other examples, but it's clear that this is kind of the the trajectory of what he's focusing on on here. When you look at verse 30, he says this, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. And he starts with a very familiar example here, doesn't he? Um, And this is the example of Joshua and the Israelites. And um, it's a very well-known known, uh, example. And what I'm going to do today is I am going to go back for these first few and take us through a little bit of the account. And then we'll come back to Hebrews. So I would encourage you to mark in Hebrews 11 where you are. And then if you are able to, turn with me to Numbers 13. And we'll look at a little bit of these uh, examples here at the beginning. <clears throat> but last week, if you were here last week, we saw Israel crossing the Red Sea as God had parted it. Do you remember that? Moses had led them out of Egypt. They had uh, come to the, uh, the Red Sea. The Egyptians were following them behind, and so they felt trapped, but God did an amazing miracle through Moses. He parted the Red Sea. They were able to travel through on dry ground, reach the other side, and then when the Egyptians tried to follow them through, the waters closed back in and their enemy, enemy was vanquished. And that's the last of, that we saw of Israel. And now the author draws our attention to event, an event here that happens in Jericho. And Jericho was a city that was across the Jordan River in the Promised Land. But 40 years have passed in our Hebrews passage from them crossing the Red Sea and arriving at Jericho. Uh, they should have reached Jericho probably in 40 months, not 40 years. What have the people been doing all of this time? Well, if you remember, the people had actually been here before. They were on the doorstep of the promised land. Moses had sent spies into the land to just search it out. And in Numbers 13, here you are with this account. The spies have gone. They've come back, and they've reported that it indeed is a land of promise. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's a beautiful land. It's a lush land. But in verse 28, they also add this, Nevertheless, the people who dwell in the land are strong. The cities are fortified and very large. Moreover, we saw the descendants of Anak there. So there's, there's these giants there. The, the cities are, are strong. They're fortified. We won't be able to get into the, the cities. Um, in fact, later on, it just says that they gave a bad report. They gave a bad report. But there's a young man with them named Caleb, and Caleb gives a different perspective in verse 30. Look what Caleb says. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and take possession, for we are well able to overcome it. Do you see that? Now, this is true. There are big fortified cities, big people there, and it seems overwhelming. But Caleb says, No. We're able to overcome it. Now, what is Caleb trying to tell us here? Because we have greater numbers? Because we have our own fortified cities? No, because they have the God of Israel. This has to do with his faith. But the people weren't looking at the obstacles in front of them through the eyes of faith. All they saw were the obstacles. And so in verse 31, 
The men who had gone up with him said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. That really says it all. They're just stronger. They're stronger. There's no way that we can do it. But here's the thing. It's not about our, our, our strength, is it? When we are talking about faith, it has nothing to do with anything in your own ability. It's not in your own strength. And so when we're looking at the idea of overcoming obstacles, persevering through struggles, this doesn't mean anything about your own strength. It, 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 we don't say, okay, you know, just uh, buck up, brother, <laughs> right? Uh, just get ready. No, it calls for deeper faith in the God who can overcome the obstacles. Caleb had that kind of faith. He understood what God was promising them. But because the majority won out, their unbelief won out, the result was God was done with them. He was not going to have anything more to do with this generation of believers. And so they walked in the wilderness for 40 years until that generation had passed away. And you, you can see what God's response is in chapter 14 of Numbers. Verses 22 to 23, he's not happy with them. Uh, Verse 22, because all these men who have seen me, seen my glory (coughs) and the signs which I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and have put me to the test now these 10 times, you read in Numbers, you see all the tests they put God under, and they've not heeded my voice, they certainly shall not see the land of which I swore to their fathers, nor shall any of those who rejected me see it. And that is what took, um, took place. But here it's 40 years later. Moses has died. Joshua is now leading the people. They've crossed over the Jordan. They're now facing their first fortified city, Jericho. And let me tell you, it was a fortified city. This was a massive city. The walls of the city were huge. You could drive two chariots side by side on on these things. It was a big, big city, a big obstacle. And in Joshua, if you're in Numbers, just turn to the book of Joshua, chapter 6. God comes up with a battle plan. Joshua chapter 6. Verse 1. Now Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand, its king and the mighty men of valor. You shall march around the city, all you men of war. You shall go all around the city once. This you shall do six days. And seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. But the seventh day you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. It shall come to pass when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that all the people shall shout with a great shout, and in the wall of the city will fall down flat, and the people shall go up, every man straight before him. Now that is uh, uh, your, your Sunday school story. If you were raised in the church at all, you heard this story, and you, you loved this story, and maybe you even made a little craft horn uh, to, to, to blow. But this, this is a crazy plan. The men of war are told to march around the city, and they're supposed to just march around, not shooting arrows, not throwing rocks just once a day, and, and they're supposed to do that um, for six days. And on the seventh day, they march around seven times. And on that seventh day, and they march around the city the seventh time, the, the, the priests that are in front are to blow these horns. 
Um, and, and you see all these numbers, seven, seven, seven. Well, God is trying to issue a, a message here. Seven's the number of perfection. And he's saying, listen, I know this all sounds silly, but trust in my perfect plan. And so he marched around the city, and they do that. And they get around that seventh time. They, the priests blow this loud blast. The people are just supposed to yell. And then it happens just like God said it would happen. The, the walls just fell flat, and they went in, they conquered the city. But think about what they, were, what, what they were thinking when they were given that plan and when they were enacting that plan. They probably felt, you know, pretty foolish. We're just walking around the city. We're not accomplishing anything. That's day one. Day two, he's, he's telling us to do this again. This is silly. And they just do it day after day after day. I'm sure some doubted. But do you know that not one single word of complaining or doubt is mentioned in Joshua 6? There's nothing. When you read Numbers, it's all complaining, right? The people complain, they complain, they doubt, they fear. There's nothing mentioned in Joshua 6, but it's all over Exodus and Numbers. But he also doesn't say a word about their faith. He doesn't say, oh, but the people's faith was so strong, they followed me. It just, it just says they did what they were commanded to do. The unwavering obedience to a pretty crazy plan showed that they trusted in the God who could overcome the obstacle of Jericho that first city. And this is what the author of Hebrews is bringing us back uh, to. He says, by faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. It, they just, just walked around and they fell, fell down, trusting in the power of God. He brings up Rahab next. If you look back at Hebrews 31, by faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Rahab is an inhabitant of Jericho. What makes this mention of her so remarkable um, is that she's not a Jewish person. She's not of Jewish descent. Uh, she's not one with, uh, that walked with God like Enoch. She's not seen as a righteous person like Noah. She, she is a pagan. What's more, she's a prostitute and she's a Canaanite. But before the Israelites marched around Jericho, Joshua repeated what Moses did. He sent spies. He sent spies to, uh, to, to spy out the city. And if you want to look at this, it's Joshua chapter 2. So if you still have your finger in Joshua 6, just look back at Joshua chapter 2. <clears throat> and this is what it says. It says, Now Joshua, the son of Nun, sent out two men from Acacia Grove to spy secretly, saying, Go view the land, especially Jericho. So they went and came to the house of a harlot named Rahab and lodged there. And it was told the king of Jericho, saying, Behold, men have come here tonight from the children of Israel to search out the country. So the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out all the country. And then the woman took the two men and hid them. So she said, Yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And it happened as the gate was being shut, when it was dark, that the men went out. Where the men went, I do not know. Pursue them quickly, for you may overtake them. But she had brought them up to the roof and hidden them with the stalks of flax, which she had laid in order on the roof. So she hid the enemy. Remember, they're the enemy coming in. And she lied to her own king, her own king. So what's striking about this is the reason that she gives for her actions. Why did she hide these guys? What was she thinking? Look ahead of verse 8. Now, before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land 
that the terror of you has fallen on us and that all the inhabitants of the land are faint-hearted because of you. For we, now look at this, for we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were on the other side of the Jordan, Sihon and Og, whom you utterly destroyed. And as soon as we heard these things, our hearts melted. Neither did there remain in any, any more courage in anyone because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. Now, therefore, I beg you, swear to me by the Lord, since I've shown you kindness, that you also will show kindness to my father's house and give me a true token and spare my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, and all that they have and deliver our lives from death. Incredible. She recognized that there was a God a real God, a true God, and it was the God of Israel. And so in that exact moment, right then and there, she pledged allegiance to that God and faith in that God and said, so you're the enemy coming in. I'm, I'm at your mercy. So would you make a pledge? Would you just, when you come in, you're going to win because you have that God behind you. Would you save me? Would you save my family? When you think about someone like Rahab, what was her, her obstacle in all this? She wasn't God's chosen. She wasn't part of Israel. She was a Canaanite. She was one destined to die. And listen, they were a wicked and perverse and idolatrous uh, people. And you read about what the Canaanites did. It's, it's atrocious. They would put live babies in jars and build them into the city wall as foundation sacrifices. Horrific kinds of things. But even this kind of wickedness can be overcome by faith. Have you ever talked to someone that said, oh, I'm beyond saving? Oh, you don't know what I've done. Oh, you don't know the life I've done. There's no way. All you need to do is go, Rahab. (laughs) All you need to say is thief on the cross. All you need to do is say, me, me. I'm wicked in God's eyes. I'm wicked and I'm beyond saving, but God saves. He is the one that overcomes. All he says is just believe. And she believed her act of faith. If you know anything about Rahab, she became the mother of Boaz. When you read the story of Ruth, Ruth marries who? Boaz. And then she becomes the great, great grandmother of King David. And when you read Matthew chapter one, whose name do you see in the genealogy of Jesus Christ? Rahab, who was a prostitute, a Canaanite destined for destruction, but God saved because of her faith. And then the author mentions many other names. Those are the only two he sort of zeroes in on. But if you look back here, he just begins to sort of kind of go right through them because he's running out of time as well, as you can see in verse 32. And what more shall I say for the time would fail me? (laughs) He's like, I just can't go on. He's like, this will be a long letter. People will fall asleep and you're going to fall asleep too. So I'm going to go through these fast as well. But he just says, for the time would fail me to tell of Gideon. Well, what about Gideon? Well, Gideon, you can read about on your own, but it's in Judges chapter 7. And if you're in Joshua, I just want to point out a a verse. It's Joshua, uh, Judges, sorry, very next book over. If you're in Joshua, go to Judges chapter 7. But Gideon was a judge of Israel. It was during a time of Israel's failure. They were going in these cycles of uh, sinfulness. God would put a nation of people to oppress them over them. They would cry out for God's mercy. So he sent a judge to deliver them. They'd be free from that oppression, and they'd go right back into another one. These cycles, the cycles would continue on. But he was a judge, a military leader. 
The Midianites, the Amalekites, were oppressing Israel in this time. They had an army of 135,000 people. God calls on Gideon. He says, I want you to lead an army against that 135,000. Gideon shows up with an army of 32,000. And God says, yeah, that's too many. And I'm sure Gideon thought, I don't, I'm not a mathematician. You know, math's not my strength here, but 135 I got 32. He says, yeah, that's too many. I want you to do it with fewer men. And so he whittles it down to 10,000. He's like, okay, well, 10,000, here we go. Oh, he goes, oh, no, that's that's too many. I need you to whittle it down further. And he whittles it down to 300 men. And if you kind of look at the numbers and the math and you think about that, that's 450 to 1. If you're going into the battle, it's you against 450. That's impossible odds. That's unbelievable. But if you're in Judges... Chapter 7, look at verse 2. This is the reason the Lord gives that. The Lord said to Gideon, the people who are with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel claim glory for itself against me, saying, my own hand has saved me. See, when you read these stories, God is saying the same thing over and over again. It's not going to be by your own strength. It's going to be by my strength. I am going to do it. So he sends them into the battle with 300, but not with traditional weapons. Oh, no, he's got to make that even harder. He sends them into battle with trumpets, uh-huh, uh, with pitchers that have torches in them. I mean, are we, are we chucking the trumpets at? What are we doing? But it's amazing. He just has them blow the trumpets and break the pitchers, and the armies are so just woken up out of a deep sleep. They're just so confused. They kill each other, and they win the battle. Amazing. God gave them the victory. The next name he mentions is Barak, Barak, and you can read about him in Judges chapter uh, 4, but the Israelites during this time were being oppressed by Jabin. He's a Canaanite king. They had a fearsome general named Sisera. You remember what he had at his disposal? 900 iron chariots. Now, chariots were fierce weapons of war. This is the enemy that uh, reigned over them at that time. So God commands Barak to take 10,000 men, but only from two tribes. We've got 12 tribes. Yeah, I know. I just want you to go to two tribes, Naphtali and Zebulun. I want you to take 10,000 men, and I want you to attack, <laughs> attack Sisera's army. Barak didn't want to go. Don't, don't, don't blame him, unless he had God's representative with him. It's an amazing chapter because at this time in Israel's history, men weren't really willing to lead. But, but there was Deborah. Deborah was a prophetess. And she was God's representative at this time. She was judging Israel in those days. And so Barak took Deborah into battle with him. In fact, Deborah even prophesied that in those days um, that the battle wouldn't go and give glory to him. They actually, someone else would win the battle. If you're in Judges 4, it's chapter 4, uh, verse 9. Chapter 4, verse 9, so she said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey you are taking, for the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. And if you remember the story, Sisera flees into a tent. (laughs) Jael is there, and she goes, oh, yeah, just have a nice bed. I'm sure you're tired, and while you're sleeping, I'm going to nail a tent peg through your head. And that's what happens, and she kills him. Um, But the, the, the war was won ultimately by a woman. (laughs) <laughs> if you think about it, like the, the, the prophetess went with them, the victory was given, and then the enemy was killed by a woman, and God was communicating something there, right? I'm going to use any means, but I'm going to do it. Next name that's mentioned is Samson. We know about Samson. Um, 
it's interesting that he would even mention Samson because we don't often think of Samson as a man of faith. We don't go, ah, the great man of faith, Samson. But he highlights him here anyway because although his motives weren't always pure, you know, he, he, he knew what his role was and he knew where his power came from. He knew it was supernatural power and he knew who gave it to him. And, and he ended, even at the end of his life, when he lost his power, who did he call out to to get that power back? God. He said, God, you need to give me this power back. If you're in Judges, I just want to read that verse. It's in Judges 16. It's a wonderful uh, cry. Obviously, he's captured at this point. He has no eyes. He's the, uh, really the, um, the enemy of the Philistines, and so they're, they're using him for sport and entertainment. And in verse 28, it says this, Samson, call, Samson called to the Lord, saying, O Lord God, remember me, I pray. Strengthen me, I pray, just this once, O God, that I may with one blow take vengeance on the Philistines for my two eyes. He called out to the one who had the strength, and the strength was given to him. But he's the source of strength. Jephthah is mentioned next. Jephthah is known for his rash vow. Um, but as a judge of Israel, he operated by the power of the Lord. He, his trust was in the Lord. We'll talk more about him in a moment. David is mentioned next. Anyone know anything about David? We know a lot about David, right? You can read tons about David, but you think of his victory over Goliath. Think about that obstacle. Think about the armies of Israel cowering because of this giant. And here comes this little shepherd boy, not even wanting to wear the armor of the king with stones. Here's this uncircumcised man defying the armies of God. Who's this guy defying the armies of God? We are the armies of God. So we have the ability to conquer him. And so he runs out there and he slays him with a stone. Giant is killed. God called that, uh, David a man after his own heart. Samuel is mentioned next. Samuel was the last judge of, of Israel. He heard God calling him when he was a young boy. Remember Samuel, Samuel, he, he knew God had called him. And in his life, he was courageously facing his own people. <laughs> they, were in, they were deeply steeped in, in idolatry. Yeah, immorality was rampant. So he was actually um, trying to bring his own people out of those things, Samuel was. And he had to trust in the faithfulness and the, the power and strength of God. And then he just mentions in a generic way, and then the prophets. And that's the, the last of that list there. Now you think about all these people that were mentioned in verse uh, 32 of, of, of Hebrews. You think back to Gideon. When you read Gideon's account, he demonstrated very weak faith. He, he kept repeating to God, Would you, let me do another sign. Do another sign to really show me that you really mean what you mean. And he questioned God all the time. Anyone ever question God? You ever ask for a sign? Oh, God, you really need to show me. Because uh, he is a textbook um, picture of one weak in faith. He also made an ephod, which caused Israel to sin and go into idolatry. He's one weak in faith, yet Hebrews mentions him in the hall of faith, a hero of faith. Why? Because ultimately he did trust in the Lord. Listen, you may have lapses in your faith. Why? You're weak. I'm weak. We're going to do that. But ultimately, will we come back and say, I understand I made that mistake. I, I relied on my own strength. I doubted in your strength. We will do that. The point is, where will your faith be at the end? Will faith really overcome obstacles? Will you really put faith and trust in him? You think about this Barak guy. He wasn't really courageous enough to go into battle without this, this, this woman. 
God didn't say, hey, I want you to go win this battle and take this woman with you because she's kind of got the power. No, he just was fearful to do it. Gideon was fearful. Sam said, again, you think of his sexual infidelities. He was rebellious, impulsive. God used him. Jephthah, you know what Jephthah's rash vow was? To sacrifice his daughter. A human sacrifice, his own daughter. David, we know about David. He committed adultery with Bathsheba, murdered her husband Uriah. Samuel, Samuel's a pretty godly man. You think about his life and, and pretty sound all around. But when you read about his sons, he appointed them as judges over Israel. But when you read about those sons, they turned aside for dishonest gain. They perverted justice. They weren't good men. And so he wasn't a great father. But these sins and these faults of these men, none of those things are highlighted by our author here. Their faith and trust in God is. And by that faith, look at all that they overcome. Sometimes, you know, I think the greatest obstacles aren't just the things in front of us. I think it's the things in us. It's just overcoming ourselves, and, and we see that here. Going back to Hebrews, look at what he goes on with in verse 33. After that list of men, he says, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of, <coughs> stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weaknesses were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. This is sort of a recap of, of, of the lives of each of those, those guys. You think about they subdued kingdoms. Absolutely, Joshua came, came in, and they conquered all the promised land. Not every square inch of it, but they, they subdued kingdoms. The judges are all about that as well. Worked righteousness. Think even back to Abraham when, when it says that he believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. They obtained promises. Well, did they attain promises? Hebrews says they didn't actually inherit it, but in the eyes of faith, they obtained it. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those promises are what kept them going. Stop the mouths of lions. That could be a reference to David because David said that um, the Lord had delivered him from the, the paw of the, the lion and the paw of the, the bear. But I start to wonder if he isn't now branching off into that category of the prophets, all the prophets. Anyone think of a Another prophet that maybe stopped the mouths of lions. That was Daniel, right? Daniel and the lions did another Sunday school story you learn about, right? By faith, those, those lions' mouths were stopped. And it's an incredible, incredible story. And I think it might be a reference to Daniel because he follows that by this phrase, quench the violence of fire. I think of his three friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, right? They're thrown into that fiery furnace and God delivered them from that. Escaped the edge of the sword. Elijah, you think about Elijah and that wicked Jezebel queen chasing him. He feared for his life. He thought he would be dead. So he escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Again, Samson, totally weak, helpless, and said, God, give me that strength. They became valiant in battle. We see a lot of, you know, Gideon. Gideon thought, honestly, when God came to Gideon, he, he thought, you know, you picked the wrong guy. First of all, I'm the weakest of the clans. I'm, I'm from Manasseh, okay? Do you know who you're coming to? And in Manasseh, I'm the least in my father's house. That's why I want you. He took Gideon and turned to flight the armies of the aliens. All of these people mentioned here overcame obstacles, and they were delivered from threat. And you go, wow, that's incredible. And, you know, we all have obstacles in our lives. We all have struggles. We all have difficulties. We all have threats. But that is not necessarily always the outcome of your faith. We, we see a lot of examples that it panned out that way, but that's not always the case. To overcome does not always mean 
that you're going to escape your circumstances. Some don't. Some do. And that really is the second point that he continues here, is that faith does conquer obstacles, but faith also allows us to continue in suffering. And there's a great long list here, isn't there? Verse 35, women receive their dead, raised to life again. You know, a, a woman that loses her son, that's suffering. But then the suffering was temporary because they were raised to life again. We see that in Elijah. Remember that? The um, widow of Zarephath received her child back at the hands of Elijah. His, his uh, successor, Elisha, did the same, uh, same thing. But then he goes on in verse 35, others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So the widows, they, they, they had resurrected children. Um, but listen, overcoming faith also, it empowers us to continue through suffering because we see something better, a better resurrection. There's a better, you think about those two, those two examples, those, those children that were resurrected, they died again, didn't they? There was a death that, that came uh, uh, ultimately. It's the better resurrection that, that we have to anchor to. Now, hang tight, because this is a long list of suffering things here, and it's going to sound difficult, but I, I want to go through this, because look at verse 36. Still others had trial of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, were tempted, were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and, and tormented. There's a lot of mental suffering here. There's a lot of physical suffering here. In fact, that word tortured is where we get the word timpani from. It's tipanudza, and it literally is a word referencing a torture, a, a, a torture of, of being strung out on a drum and beaten to death. That is what's in view here. We see people who are sawn in two. Isaiah traditionally is one who was seen as being sawn in two. Um, people were stoned. People were tempted. People were slain with the sword. And I want to give you an example here. I, um, I was reading some of these accounts in Fox's Book of Martyrs, and if you've ever read some of these, I know, don't worry, these aren't going to be so graphic that you need to run out of the room. But I want to give you an idea. You know, you read through here, and all the apostles, all of them suffered martyrdom. Even John is considered a martyr, martyr because of what he suffered before he was sentenced to exile on Patmos because he didn't die. They tried to boil him, and he couldn't die. So they were, oh, let's just get rid of the guy then. Um, but all of them are 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 said to have been martyrs. But here um, we have a, a list of of people of faith in history who had great obstacles, but but God saw fit to have them continue in their suffering, even to the point of death. And that might be the case for some people. God does not always deliver us from those circumstances. And this is the fourth persecution that's coming through the church. This is about A.D. 100. And here's some accounts here. And it just kind of describes the kind of things that were happening. All manner of punishments were adopted, torments and painful deaths, such as being banished, plundered, hanged, burnt. Even the servants and slaves of opulent Christians were racked and tortured to make them accuse their masters and employers. The following were the principal of these martyrs, Vidius Agathus, a young man who, having pleaded the Christian cause, was asked if he was a Christian. And when answering in the affirmative, he was condemned to death. Many, animated by this young man's intrepidity, boldly owned their faith, and they suffered like him. Blandina, a Christian, uh, but of weak constitution, being seized and tortured on account of her religion, received so much strength from heaven that her torturers became frequently tired. 
and were surprised at her being able to bear her torments for so great a length of time and with such resolution. Incredible. This is a man named uh, St. Lawrence, and he so angered the governor that the governor had him beaten with rods. Um, He was laid on a a wooden horse, and his limbs were dislocated. And uh, then they put him in a large gridiron, and they lowered him over a heat, and they started to broil him. And I don't know, because I haven't gone through it, but I imagine that there's a greater grace that comes upon the believer in times like this, because this account is pretty hard to believe, but he sort of gets kind of, I don't know, cynical, um, kind of makes light of this. It says this, having lain for some time upon the gridiron, the martyr called out to the emperor who was present in a kind of jocose Latin couplet, which may be thus translated. And this is what he said. This side is broiled sufficient to be food for all who wish it to be done in good. He's basically saying, I'm done on this side. You want to flip me? And on this, the executioner turned him. And after having lain a considerable time longer, he still had strength and spirit enough to triumph over the tyrant by telling him with great serenity that he was roasted enough and only wanted serving up. Yeah. Incredible when you think about that. Um, the, the, the author of Hebrews here says something of these saints of whom the world was not worthy. They weren't worthy The world isn't worthy of people like this. That's an incredible statement. It's a wicked and perverse generation. We're not worthy of of Christ, are we? We weren't worthy of Christ coming into our midst and suffering for us, and yet he came and he died for us. Remember John 15, 20 said, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also, also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. You know, some of the examples of the the book here in in the Book of Martyrs demonstrate that even those who died had had such grace upon them that many turned to faith because of the way that they they died. I'm just going to read these accounts. They're they're fascinating. During the martyrdom of Faustinus and Jovita, brothers and citizens of Brescia, their torments were so many and their patience so firm that Colisarius, he was a pagan, beholding them, was struck with admiration and exclaimed in ecstasy, great is the God of the Christians, for which he was apprehended and put to death. Just by witnessing what they were going going through. Incredible. Germanius, a young and holy Christian being delivered to the beasts on account of his faith, behaved with such astonishing courage that several pagans became converts to a faith which inspired so much fortitude. And you read on and on and on, and, and they, they, they just had such a witness in accepting what was coming to them. And I, you know, we see that in the apostles as well. We looked at that a little bit last week, that they rejoiced that they were counted worthy of suffering. I don't know if you think about that, that we'd rejoice in suffering. But listen, faith understands that we can continue even through suffering. I think a lot of times we pray for the suffering to end, don't we? We go around, what's your prayer request? Oh, I just want this to end. I pray for these things. But sometimes that's not God's will. Sometimes we're called to endure it. But how do we do that? We rejoice in it. 1 Peter 4, 13, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. We can be glad with exceeding joy because of what Paul declares in Romans 8, 18. You know this verse. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. So we can continue in difficult times 
in suffering times, through suffering, because of faith. That is part of our faith. And that's a faith that's also counting on salvation. That's the final point. Faith counts on salvation. Verse 39 of Hebrews says this, that all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. The Old Testament examples that we looked at from Abel to the prophets, they all gained a good testimony, didn't they? A good testimony through their faith. In other words, they they were able to conquer obstacles um, because of their faith for some. For others, it helped them to continue in suffering. Some received land, right? Some got the inheritance, some didn't. Some were victorious, some weren't. Sometimes they were saved from death and sometimes they died. They did not receive what was promised, but put their faith in what was promised, knowing that God had provided something better. Verse 40 says that again, God having provided something better. That's been the theme, better. Don't turn back. Don't look back. Remember all the don'ts of Hebrews? Don't go back because something better is here. They knew God had promised something better beyond the land, beyond temporal victories, even beyond death. And then it says that they should not be made perfect apart from us. That could be confusing. I think the key is this understanding of the they and the us. The they is all these Old Testament examples, okay? All those Old Testament examples are they. The us, the author of Hebrews, the New Testament saints he's writing to, that's the us. They, Old Testament saints, would not be made perfect apart from New Testament saints. That's been this whole point over the last few chapters. Yeah, the Old Testament saints, they had great faith, but something better has come. Jesus has come. The new covenant has come. And so his work on the cross made all things perfect. Sin is finally fully dealt with. Cleansing has come. The blood of bulls and goats never accomplished that. So the perfect has come. Remember, all the Old Testament saints' salvation was based on what Christ would do. Our, our salvation is based on what Christ did do. But we both have faith that counts on the promise of salvation. And that's the point. And that brings us to the end of this chapter 11, this great hall of faith. We've looked at all these aspects of faith. We've talked about so many things and looked at so many examples. And one thing should reign supreme. There was never anything special about the individuals. I don't you want to look at any of these people and say, oh, but that's Moses. Oh, but that's Joshua. Nothing special about them. Many of them were weak and cowardly, insufficient, unqualified, unsuitable. And yet God chose those people. And there's a powerful principle here that's seen through these lives, but also it's explicitly taught. And I want to close really quickly with this. It's 2 Corinthians 12, 9. You might remember Paul's suffering physically. He has a thorn in the flesh. He says, a messenger of Satan. And so he prays to God three times to take it away from him. And this is God's answer. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. That was God's answer to him. And Paul concluded then, therefore, most gladly, then. If that's the case, most gladly I would rather boast in my infirmities, the things that make me weak, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. It's when we are weak, when all the strength is pulled from us, then that we have no choice but to rely on the one who has the strength. God's strength is perfected through the weakness of his servants. J. Oswald Sanders said this, when they are content to be nothing, he can be everything. Do you hear that? We're content to be nothing, he can be everything. 
And he goes on to say this, and I have the quote on the screen for you. I thought it was a wonderful ending to this. Speaking about these heroes in the great hall of faith, this is the strategy of God, that the world should know that Christianity, all the triumph of faith in individual lives and the onward march and mission of the church is not to be explained by anything in man. Any human virtue, prowess, ability, for in the light of the men involved, any such explanation would be absurd. Therefore, the only possible explanation must be supernatural and divine. That's the faith. That's the faith of these men here. That's the faith that this writer is calling to the Jews to have an exhibit right then and there. Don't go back. Don't go back to the old. You can overcome with the faith that comes through Christ. Faith in him overcomes all the obstacles, overcomes even suffering by taking us even through it, and maybe even to the point of death. But what do we get beyond that? A better resurrection. There's only good for us beyond that. It's just when we focus on the obstacles that are in front of us, isn't it? And those things become so huge, we cannot see God behind that. They sort of eclipse him. Instead, have God in the forefront. Let those things be blocked out by him and his strength. Let me pray. God, thank you for the wonderful time we've had in this wonderful chapter of Hebrews 11, Lord, and the, uh, all we've learned about faith. And, <clears throat> Lord, maybe we're overwhelmed. We've heard too much about faith at this point, but Lord, I just pray if we come away with anything looking at these heroes of the faith and talking about faith, we would remember this, that there's nothing special about me, my ability to have a strong faith, my gifts, none of those things but it's you. My faith is in you. It is the object of my faith, Lord. I don't know where people are. I know everyone has, is in their own station of life. People have various difficulties and struggles and, and obstacles that are before them. I pray, Lord, that they would take these things to you and allow their faith in you to overcome them. And then if you don't, but you choose to allow, allow them to be overcome by them, may they remember those great words of Daniel's friends when confronted with death of the fiery furnace that our God is able to deliver us from this. But, but even if he chooses not to, even if he doesn't, we're still not going to bow down to you. We, we know what you're capable of, God. We know what you can do. But we also know that you have... Uh, the sovereignty, and you can choose to do what you want to do for uh, your purposes and for your plan, which is always perfect, and so we will trust in you. Help us, Lord. Help us to have that kind of faith. We need you. Help us to rely on your strength through everything. Lord, thank you for this church. I thank you for the people here that have been here to um, along this whole journey as we've gone through Hebrews. I pray that you encourage them today. In Jesus' name, amen.